us a bit, going back to Matthew 9, by saying, a time is coming, though, when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they will fast. So we'll talk about that here a little bit, too. What does that mean, that the bridegroom, Jesus, is going to be taken away? And then there'll be a time of fasting. But then he finishes the passage in verse 17 by switching metaphors. You have to understand, essentially, that new wine is here. And your heart has to be like a new wineskin to receive the new wine, or it will burst with contradiction. Or you have to be like, uh, like a new patch onto a new garment. Otherwise, when you wash it, it'll tear and make a worse garment. We've got to be, our hearts have to be ready for this new type of patch or new type of wine that Jesus brings into the world. Again, major biblical theological theme here. He's not bringing up newness for the first time in Matthew 9. It comes up many places in the Old Testament and will before the Bible before the Bible's over, which we'll come to here uh, shortly. So, okay, here's the plan for today. What I want to do is address this tension in Matthew 9 and in the greater scriptures and ask the big question, is fasting a necessary Christian discipline or not? Is fasting a necessary Christian discipline or not? Or to put it another way, should Christians fast or not according to this passage and passages like this in the Bible? And I think just to... Uh, express my answer to begin and we'll come back and unpack it. I think the answer is no, Christians are not required to fast, but with a soft yes <laughs> at the same time. Like what? Uh, it's tricky, right? Uh, I think that the Bible, it's, the Bible itself teaches this and this passage itself gets at this, right? It kind of says, no, the bridegroom's here, but then it comes around and says, but there will be a time of fasting in the future too. So, but as we answer this, this is my bigger thing. We're going to address the passage uh, from that vantage point, but as we answer it, we're going to get a kind of, all kinds of gospel here and a kind of gospel perspective that I think Jesus gives us a fresh angle on it that we don't get elsewhere in the gospels. More understanding, like I said before, about who he is and why he came. Remember, that's what Jesus is most interested in. He's interested in teaching people about himself, but he uses questions like this uh, to give a fresh angle on it for people. So he's going, to, he's going to bring up the issue. We're going to talk about fasting today. But eventually and ultimately, I'll weave this in as we go, we're going to learn more about who Christ is and, and why he came. That's the most important thing. That's what this passage is about. It's not about how to fast, as you see, as you saw, and you will see. It's not about that. It's not really about fasting ultimately at all. It's about Jesus. So we have that perspective, then we're really going to understand what's going on here. Uh, otherwise, we'll, we'll miss the point for the sake of the details and not get the big picture. Okay, so again, the answer is no and a soft yes. Let's go back and look at the no first. So no, Christians are not required to fast biblically because, as Matthew 9 says, the bridegroom's here. Why, why, should, why should the people of God fast? And so I want to go back here to the new wine phrase for just a minute. So let's look at that phrase from verse 17. Jesus says new wine is here. Again, Bible talks in newness terms a lot in the Bible. Jesus is the new thing that God is doing in relation to how things worked in Old Testament times. Isaiah 43, 19, the passage that Spencer read this morning, just to read that again, or actually two verses from it. God says through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Christ arrives, but predicting his coming, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, look, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? And so the Testaments then are very similar, Old and New Testament in a lot of ways, but they're very different in a lot of other ways. God himself just says clearly that the old way is one way and the new way is different. Even to the degree where he says, don't even think about the old things anymore. Look ahead. I'm doing something that is new 
over and against the old. And as we have seen a lot in this series already, the Old Testament and the laws in the Old Testament in particular served a preparatory role. It's one of the things that they did in that it pulled back the curtain of our soul a bit to just to show us how bad things really were in there. It's what the law did. It showed us we can't keep it. And in that, relatedly, pointed us ahead to the new salvation thing that God was going to do in history, which was always Jesus. He was always planning for that. But the old ways helped make the new ways shine all the brighter. The old ways prepared the stage for the arrival of Christ all the more, which it wouldn't have been prepared as beautifully if we didn't have those old things beforehand. But, but we can't make the mistake of making them co-equals, the Testaments. We have to see them as all God's word, but as one is preparatory and one is reality. So Jesus is that new thing then. And the basis of the New Testament or New Covenants would always be his blood. That's a key thing. Not just in the new, it was talked about and predicted and foreshadowed in the old as well. The basis of the New Testament or covenant would always be his blood. Nothing else. The grace of God, not good deeds, not works of righteousness, not law. God, not us. That's the clear basis there. Actually, a little bit later, we're going to celebrate communion. One of the things Jesus says hours before his death is he holds up a cup of wine and says, this is my blood of the New Testament of the new covenant. So he's anticipating what he's going to do hours from there on the cross and just to say that in my blood, in what I do on the cross, is the essence of the new covenant. It really begins there. It's been predicted throughout Old Testament times, but until a death occurs, Hebrews says, another place in the New Testament, until a death occurs, that new testament or covenant cannot begin. Just like a will does not go into effect until the one who wrote it dies. It's the same thing. Someone had... The, the author, Jesus, of the New Testament has to die before the effects of it, the beneficiaries receive the benefits of, of the New Testament. So this is so much the case Then Paul says repeatedly, I have Romans 6 up here as well, he says repeatedly in the New Testament, this is one place, you are not under law, but you're under the grace of God. That's what you're under now in this New Testament era. Also in Hebrews 8, when God speaks of a New Testament or a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So again, we see this, this contrast here, and when Jesus is talked about as a new thing, it's just by definition it means there must have been an old thing to be a background to it. So again, going back to what Jesus says in Matthew 9 then, that's some of the theological background, but when Jesus says new wine, he's picking up here on a greater biblical theological theme. Things are changing. Old things are being fulfilled and surpassed by new things. We have to see this in the Bible. This is a this is a really important passage, actually, on this whole issue of things. The times change. And when, they, when Jesus fulfills, he does change things. He maintains some things, but he changes a lot of things. Changes a lot of things here as well. So by saying, there's no need to fast, I am here, he's basically saying then, fasting is one of these things that comes up one place, one major place in the Old Testament. Fasting, like everything else in the Old Testament, was preparatory for him. And the Jews in Jesus' day had other times of fasting that they, they added to what the Bible said in the Old Testament, a twice-a-week fast. So Jesus is partly responding to that as well. But the one major place fasting comes up in the Old Testament is in the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Old Testament, chapter 16, in which says, During the annual day of atonement, where God would atone for the sins of the people through sacrifice and a scapegoat ritual, God says, You shall fast, or some of your translations say, Afflict yourselves. You shall fast in association with uh, that festival and that day. So every year they would do this. They would watch the priests lay hands on the head of a, an animal, and it would be slain in their place. Then they watched the priests lay hands on the head of another animal, a goat, and watch it let out into the wilderness and disappear on the horizon. 
So basically to say, my sins have been transferred onto this animal, and it's dying in my place, and transferred here onto this other animal, a scapegoat, and it's disappearing on the horizon. My sins are on that thing, and it's gone. You see, so that, that's, that's what they see every year, and in connection with that festival, which in and of itself anticipates Christ, we'll talk about that here in a second, in connection with that, they were, they were called the fast. So in Leviticus 16 then, it's something that would have just helped them as they watched this happen every and they watched sacrifice happen more frequently, but on this uh, annual day especially, it would have helped them to feel broken over their sin as they watched an animal die in their place. And, but also to realize that as great as the festival of the Day of Atonement was, as great as that, as central of a festival as that was for the people of God in the Old Testament, that it wasn't really working because they had to keep doing it over and over again, right? This is one of actually the central arguments in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author picks up on sacrifice in the Old Testament and says, one of the ways we know that it wasn't really working is because they had to keep doing it. If it worked, there would be one and done. That's it. It would atone for the sins of the people, done. But the fact that it had to keep repeating, and the fact that we had to keep getting new high priests to take over when, after the priest died, the fact that we had to keep repeating this cycle over and over and over, sacrifice over and over and over, high priests being elected to the role over and over and over again, it showed that was, it was ineffective to save. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So, so fasting in this, they would have seen God's grace in this festival, but it, the fasting there would have been, it would have helped them realize that this wasn't it at the same time, that there's still a mournful state here, celebratory but mournful. It would help them look ahead to the future where God would somehow bring a festival into history that's like the Day of Atonement, but it wouldn't repeat. There'd be one of them, and that's it. Sins would be taken away uh, forever through that one, that one event. So, so in the Old Testament then, it's still the old wine of preparation, but, but that's all the backdrop here. When Jesus says new wine, when we get to it, when we fast forward the story into the New Testament, Matthew 9, Jesus is saying, the new wine is here. I am here. The crux of history, everything that the Day of Atonement was about is here. Everything the sacrificial system was about is here. Everything the high priesthood in the Old Testament was about is here, and it's all wrapped up into one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sent one, the ultimate apostle. Apostle means sent one. The sent one of God into the world to fulfill and complete, but by that, surpass all that came before him. We don't have literal day of atonements anymore. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't have scapegoat ceremonies. None of that because it's all wrapped up into him. The center of the faith is looking to him for absolutely everything, and understanding everything in the Bible and history through the lens of Christ, and not just Christ, but the work of Christ for us on the cross. So the crux of history, Jesus is saying, is here. New wine. The bridegroom's here. The reception of the kingdom is here. The feast of the gospel is here. And so again, our countenance should be more celebratory. So we have to note here, to say this a different way, summarize it basically in a sentence, we have to note theologically, biblically, this movement in the Bible from law to Jesus Animal sacrifice to Jesus. From waiting and preparation to receiving. From not eating to eating. You guys see that movement, biblically speaking, picking up in Matthew 9? From law to Jesus, sacrifice to Jesus. From an epoch of fasting and not eating to a banqueting table, to Jesus, to just eating <laughs> and not fasting anymore. The bridegroom's here. 
I think it's also why we see Jesus talk a lot about himself in the Bible in terms of being bread and water so much. John 6.53 is a big piece to this, which says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's referring to himself, Jesus, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is some of the words of our, of our Savior. Unless you do this, speaking metaphorically, of course, but unless you do this, unless you eat and get nourishment spiritually, not just from me as, as a man or even as the Son of God, but my flesh and blood, he's referring to this death on the cross, unless you make that your nourishment and eat. So basically what he's saying is eating, eating in this form is a requirement to get into the kingdom of God. We have to basically eat our way in. <laughs> just nourish ourselves by Jesus Christ and the cross into the kingdom of God. We cannot, in other words, abstain from eating into the kingdom of God on the spiritual level. So I think that's also why he speaks in these food terms so much, one of the many reasons uh, in, in the Bible. Also important to note that the New Testament never commands fasting once. The New Testament never commands fasting once. It's described a couple of times that the church was partaking in this, praying and fasting, I think twice in the book of Acts, and of course talked about here, but even here in Matthew 9, it's never commanded. Jesus never says here, fast, I command you uh, to fast. So rather what we do see is a lot of uh, teachings like this. Colossians 2, 16 to 17 and 20 to 22 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this is a sampling of some of Paul's arguments here. And this is, these are not verses specifically, of course, about fasting or not fasting. But they are saying that the core of God's kingdom is Jesus. Not whether or not we fast. That's not the core. That's all unavoidable here. Paul is saying the core of the gospel of the kingdom, the core of what Christianity is all about, is the man the God-man Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Righteousness and joy and peace in that. That's the center. That's the foundation. That's the gospel. Again, not food or abstaining from food or things like that, though we can talk about those things. And if anything, actually, it errs, I think, on the side of eating a lot to the glory of God. Christians just eat a lot together. You see that in the book of Acts, and you see it actually encouraged a lot in some of Paul's letters. Eat together. And thank God for all the food that you get because it's a gift from him and, and to receive with thanksgiving and, and so forth. So, okay. So that's the first section. The, the first angle on this whole thing of, is, Christi is fasting a necessary Christian discipline a thing to do. The first angle on that is, is a no because the bridegroom's here, newness is here. That's the big perspective. But we can respond to that by saying, but what does it mean then that Jesus will be taken away? And then the disciples will fast. So Jesus is talking about a time here when the disciples will fast. What does that mean? And one of the issues here is wrestling with what, what does that mean exactly when he says that? Does it mean that 
uh, Jesus is referring to the three days that he's dead before his resurrection, or does it mean that plus his later, uh, latter ascension into heaven and the church age that we're now in, uh, where his presence is very real, but, but not face-to-face. To face to face. And this is a tough one, by the way. I just, just to be honest, I've, I've gone back and forth between these two things a lot in my life, and I happen to be landed somewhere right now, but ask me in a year, maybe it's different. But, um, but I think where I am right now with this, uh, and I think the strongest arguments can be made for it is, I think the answer is the former. I think Jesus is referring to uh, primarily, if not exclusively, his death. The three days that he's in the tomb, that that will be a time of fasting, but then that will cease. There will be a, a definitive end to that. He will rise from the dead, and then he will, in, in the same way here in Matthew 9, he'll be with people again, and the bridegroom will be that present again, and fasting will then, therefore, cease again. You could actually say then that just as Israel fasted in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, the disciples here, Jesus is saying, I think he's using Day of Atonement language when he says the disciples will fast on the ultimate Day of Atonement. When the ultimate sacrifice is happening, when Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sins, like in the Old Testament on that great day when Israel fasted, the church will, Jesus says here, fast. Literally or figuratively or metaphorically, they will mourn. They will fast. So I think he's picking up on that uh, here in, in the way he speaks in Matthew 9. But then the resurrection happens, right, after three days. And it'd be clearly inappropriate for the disciples to say, hey, he's raised from the dead. Let's mourn and weep and fast and afflict ourselves. You know, no one argues that. I mean, obviously it'd be inappropriate at that point for those several weeks before his ascension uh, to fast. No one argues against that. The resurrected Christ is accompanied by great joy. Really, you could say the complete absence of mourning in, in basically all its forms. But I also think, then, this is the second thing, that you don't get a sense in the book of Acts, which is the first book after the four gospel accounts and tells the story, the theological history of how the church is born. The Holy Spirit arrives after Jesus accomplishes salvation for us on the cross and empowers ministry. The church spreads around the, the ancient world of that time, all of that. I don't think you get a sense that the disciples are in a very gloomy state when they begin their ministry in the book of Acts. Jesus ascends to heaven. The disciples wait around for the Spirit to empower their ministry. If anything, that was the gloomy time. But then after they're empowered, they begin to preach good, happy news to thousands. And thousands are, are converted. And then finally, the third, the third reason I think he's referring to his death uh, is that Jesus continually makes this promise in the Gospels and afterwards uh, through the rest of the New Testament. God does. He says, this is actually one of the more common divine promises all throughout Scripture. And it's this. I am with you. I'm never, ever going to leave you for eternity. It's, it's awesome, powerful, just promise-based language that's wrapped up with Christ. He's basically saying, I'm doing everything. I will never leave you in the fact that my son has died for you. He's died for your sins. I'll always be with you by my spirit, and I'll always, now in the church age even too, I'll always be empowering your ministry. So if we compare this language then, going back to Matthew 9, when Jesus says, there's a time the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they will fast. Uh, but then go before that and say the bridegroom's here. And, and when Jesus is with us, then we won't fast. Then we can get uh, more, of the, more of a piece to this. So again, in verse 15, we've got a couple of verses here from Matthew and Hebrews. When Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In Matthew 1, in connection with Jesus' birth, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 28, behold, this is the last thing Jesus, one of the last things he says to the church before his ascension, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. He promises, even though I'm ascending to heaven, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, 5, I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. So against the backdrop of verses like that, with Matthew 9 in mind, how can we fast? The bridegroom's with us. He's here in a very real, tangible way. He says elsewhere in the Bible, as close as a groom is to his bride. And how we become one flesh when a couple is wedded before God and it's a mysterious union. Paul says in Ephesians 5, in that way, he is that close to us. He actually uses sexual imagery to to refer to that, that God is that close. He's that close to us uh, to, um, to be wedded. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. He will always be with us, even living inside our hearts and our souls. There's no more separation anymore because he's that much died for our sins. So again, how can we fast? All right, (laughs) but the tension still remains here, right? Kind of going back and forth like a ping pong ball, I feel like, all morning. But the tension still remains. Fasting seems like, we can ask at this point, but I hear all that. Fasting seems, though, like it has its benefits at times, right? The church seemed to do it a couple times in the book of Acts. It is still mentioned that they did it, even though they're not pictured as a very gloomy, uh, gloomy gathering of believers a lot of times, but they're in the side of joy. And there's also plenty of uh, church, early church father material that traditionally tells us it was a value early on in the first few centuries of the church. Moreover, this is probably the big one, though Jesus is with us now, isn't he kind of not with us as well? So can't we fast because he is kind of taken away from us at the same time? And of course, especially to this last question, the answer is of course yes. There's tension there, right? Jesus is here, but not yet. When he talks about his kingdom, he says, the Bible speaks in both terms. It's here already, but it's not yet in full at the same time. And so when you start to link fasting with Jesus' absence and not fasting with his presence, it gets really confusing quick, right? Because Jesus says, I'm here, but not here. So should we fast or not, right? Like, what do you do? And so I think, I think both are appropriate Uh, in due season. As long as we fast for the right reasons, fasting can be, doesn't have to be, but can have a place in in the Christian life. And so I just, I at least want to mention this today, not the gist of where I'm going, but I do want to mention this, this new type of fasting or a fasting for the right reasons or in a New Testament kind of way that I think helps us. uh, For those of you who do fast, a lot of you do, I have a lot in my life. I think that a lot of times for very wrong reasons. A lot of times in my life I've fasted for very wrong reasons legalistic. Good Christians are just supposed to do this, I think, in the Bible-type ways, and, and to do it to be seen by others. Done a lot of that, and found this much benefit from it spiritually. And actually, I think I got less mature when I fasted a lot earlier in my Christian life, and so, strangely enough. But I think that actually makes a lot of sense when you look at all these things we're looking at today. Uh, but anyway, a few things here. Make it a new type of fasting. If and when you do fast, not as a law or command to keep, but something that helps us long for Jesus' return in the spirit of how Israel longed for the first advent or arrival of the Messiah Christ. And this, by the way, I think is the difference between Christian fasting, when Christians do fast, and all other world religions, because all other religions would make it a stipulation to enter the kingdom. All other religions or philosophies of of religion would say that it's something God wants to do and you need to do it well and do it twice a week or three times a week or regularly uh, in order to be a good whatever, person of God. But Christians don't do that. If and when they do fast, they simply do it because they're longing for the presence, the full presence of their Savior. Not to be saved by it, but because they love deeply the fact that God has loved them first. They're changed by it, transformed by it, and more than anything in this life, 
They want to see Jesus face to face. And they eagerly await that day when he arrives again. That's, that, that's, that's the essence of, of Christian fasting when, when it does occur. Another thing is, uh, not as a law to keep, but something that helps us disassociate with idols. So food is good, given by God, but it can be worshipped, and it can be clung to more than Jesus himself. could be something like media as well. There's a lot of benefits sometimes just to saying, I'm going to take a day or two or plus to not eat, not do Facebook, email, phone, anything like that, uh, so that I can disassociate with that a bit and just get more time to pray and to read my Bible and to feel close, just yearn all the more for the gospel of Christ uh, in, in my life. And so that relates to the third one. third one is not as a law to keep, but something to help in a season of private prayer. You see that happen in the book of Acts. It's usually prayer and fasting that, uh, that go together. So again, more time for it. Uh, this fourth one's important too. This is the final one. Uh, not as a law to keep, but something that can create a type of death resurrection cycle for us to help us associate with Jesus all the more. Joseph Wimmer uh, says this. He contends that perhaps the Old Testament way of fasting is no longer valid in the New Testament. Fasting is not the essential Christian commandment. Other things are, are much more important. But for early Christians, it still became a participation in his redemptive suffering a special way of answering the call to deny oneself. This kind of goes back to the second thing there too, and that's what it can help us do. It can help us demonstrate with our actions that we are repenting or turning away from the old life and turning to something new, that we just want Jesus more than food. And so sometimes we'll be called into a season of that, whether it's just for a meal or a day or whatever. It can assist in that, suffering with Christ a bit, uh, and then experiencing that death to resurrection cycle. Uh, throughout our life. I think that's a helpful uh, rationale too. So all these are valid reasons to fast and there could be more as well. But I want to offer these to you for those of you guys that do value this and are, uh, are fasting and for some of you that haven't but will. Make sure it's not as a law to keep. You don't have, it's never commanded that you do this but it can be a way to just yearn for your Savior all the more. Just to give you more time in a day. To think more, less about yourself. And, and just realize how much you do think about yourself. If you ever, you ever fasted for a day or gone off of media for a day or something, just realize, I just think about myself all the time, my needs all the time. But fasting can help you pull away from that a bit and, and uh, focus more on, on the Lord. So, all right, swing back one more time, ping pong ball back one more time to this side, which I'm emphasizing today. Overall, let's not miss the main, we're in Matthew 9. So we talked a lot about what, what the whole of Scripture has to say a bit and brought in some arguments from reason as well. But overall in Matthew, let's not miss the main point here. Matthew 9 is not about how to fast. It's not really about fasting much at all. Uh, it's about Jesus. It's about Christ. That's, he uses the question of fasting to talk about himself as a new thing to be received over and against way, the things that were uh, before him. It's about the bridegroom. It's about the pronouncement of his arrival and the shift in the ages from preparation to celebration. Old Testament to New Testament. It's one of the reasons why I called this sermon today New Wine and not Fasting 101. It's not about that. It's about the new wine. Jesus being the new thing to be embraced. And if you want to be saved, we have to drink that new wine. We have to receive that as a new wineskin. Receive that, uh, not, as, not as an old one. So what Jesus is saying here, eat, partake, celebrate, dance, sing, share good news. Don't be like the bum at a wedding who's not happy at a wedding. Don't be like him, he's saying. Your, your bridegroom has arrived. 
He's really here. And sometimes we just have to realize that. Yes, he's going to be here more in the future in a very more physical face-to-face sense, but sometimes we go too far and swing the pendulum too far to that side and forget that he's here, right here. He's so close to you that, and we can't even, we can fathom that it's such a mystery. But he's, he'll, 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 he, says, he says in his word, he'll never leave us, and he is, he's promised to be with us even to the end of the age. So in light of that good news, eat, partake, celebrate, and let our countenance primarily be celebratory, though we will suffer a lot in this life as well. It's the other side of things, but this he's, this he's talking about that one side, as the bridegroom is here, so celebrate. He's risen. So we have to fill our mind with things like this, I think. Uh, you know, Christians are called to do that in the Bible as well, which is kind of like eating imagery. When you think about filling your mind or thinking hard, um, one thing that came to mind for me this week is my daughter, who's six, uh, going into second grade now at a Minneapolis public school here, which is a good school, so don't let me uh, taint that by what I'm about to say, but it's a good example. Uh, it's a good school, but she brought home this thing the other day which said, which said uh, we knew this was happening maybe once and not quite to this degree, but it said, every Wednesday your child has been participating in uh, meditation and emptying the mind. And uh, when, when a bell rings, they're called to just sit quietly and empty the mind. And so we thought, what? <laughs> okay, that's something. We've got to talk about that. And uh, so I just picture the kids in that room just having a really hard time with that, first graders. But anyway, um, <laughs> this is the thing we get from, our, you know, from the teacher. And we thought, every Wednesday, you know, it's one thing to... So our, our response to that, of course, this is the kind of things we have to confront in the world, right? What are you going to do in that moment? You're going to pull out of school... Uh, which may be right in some circumstances or, you know, or not. And in our, basically what we're doing now is we told Jane, this is, the philosophy, this is part of the philosophy of the world. And it's, they're, they're trying to be secular, of course, which is interesting because this is very, has some Eastern-type medita- meditative practices in it. Uh, regardless, the world says, empty your mind. Jesus says, the Bible says, fill your mind. Think really hard about all of this stuff we're talking about today and more. Think, fill your mind, eat in your mind of the gospel of Christ. And so we just told her, when you go, don't empty your mind. Think about Jesus and memorize this scripture and think really hard about the gospel. You are called in the Bible to eat into the kingdom of God, to be a part of the banqueting table of Jesus forever. You should be different. Because what happens when we empty our mind is we block out, part of the philosophy there is you block out things outside of you, right? And, and you, you empty your mind and get them outside. But the Bible says salvation is from outside of us, right? Salvation's not from inside, it's from outside. So we have to bring in something out here and bring it into our mind if we have any hope of being saved at all. Don't empty your mind. Don't in that way fast. It's not a characteristic of the people of God. It's eating, you know, literally or figuratively or metaphorically. I'm talking spiritually here primarily, but being a partaker of the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in all its forms. He's saved you from your sins. He's reconciled you. The final day of atonement has occurred, never to be repeated again. So it's right just to eat and live as though the kingdom of God is, it is already here. Finally, understand also that the new age is here with Christ and be that new wineskin. I think that there should be something qualitatively different about us as believers as there is here with Jesus' disciples. And here's what I love about this. Notice that Jesus' disciples are being contrasted not against evil and pagan ritual, but spirituality. Religion, right? That's what they're being contrasted against. They don't fast. It's not they don't sleep with a thousand women. 
They don't, they don't murder people. It's, they don't do a pretty good spiritual thing. What's up with that? And I think in the, in the spirit of that, we should have, it's going to come up different in our lives, of course, and some, someone may never say this to you, but they might be thinking it. Our lives should be lived as though we're full of Christ, but have a strange anti-religiosity about us at the same time. Just like what's going on here. Whereas people might think, you're all about Christ, but you're not that religious. You, never, you don't fast that much? What's the deal? Or They may never say that, but they might think that. And I think that's, what, that's what's being on, that's put on display here in biblical history. They're seeing that. Uh, people are John the Baptist's disciples, these, these religious Pharisees. These people are outside the kingdom, but more about themselves and what they do to get into the kingdom. Is this true about you or not? People look at your spirituality. Are they seen primarily a faster someone who participates in Christian disciplines, or are they seeing at the core of your spirituality the gospel of Jesus Christ and your love for the people of God in the church and for the lost? And is that the core? And, and lumped onto that, a strange degree of anti-religiosity. That's what we're picturing here. So pursue that. Uh, pursue that. And of course, there's a good place to fast. I talked about that. It's a good place to engage in different types of Christian disciplines. We don't talk a lot about those here at Hiawatha because we believe, honestly, the main two Christian disciplines that there are biblically is the gospel of Christ, believing in it, and the community of God. Engaging with the community is a discipline. And believing hard the gospel of Jesus Christ is a discipline of the mind. Filling the mind, thinking hard. Paul says in Philippians 4, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely, if anything's admirable, I mean, think about those things. Those are things that are all true about Christ. So, so think about them. Fill your mind. Partake with your mind of the gospel of grace. And in that way, be a, in that way at least, I'll put it that way, but that way at least, be a, be a non-faster. All right, let me pray for us and we'll uh, enter a time of worship here in a second. God, thank you for the gospel today. Thank you for your love for us. Uh, thank you so much for expressing uh, in, just in a few sentences in response to this great, it's really a great question, but in this question about fasting, uh, you tell us a lot about the Old Testament, about why you came into the world, about how much joy we get now, uh, knowing that our God has saved us and it's not about us. And the fasting that we do participate in is just a longing for our Savior and to be face-to-face -face with him, not something that we have to do to be saved. Because you do everything. You do absolutely everything to save us, and we do absolutely nothing. As we learned about last week and when Peter preached, we learned about how you came into the world to call and save sinners, not righteous people. And so if we're righteous and good, we are kept out. It's only messy people that get in. Uh, so that, that again testifies to that. Everything you say, everything, is somehow anticipating the cross or speaking directly about it. Thank you for that. Thank you for reminding us because we are forgetful people. We are a forgetful church. And we need to remember this, uh, th these kinds of things. So, but... God, bless us as we go forward. I pray that if we fast, some people today will be encouraged in their fasting. Other people today may need, may, need, may need to pull back from their fasting and just be more about Christ because they've been doing it to be saved. They've been doing it to be seen. They've been doing it because they just thought they should. And so whatever the response is, I pray you be glorified. Whatever we do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, may we eat and drink or whatever we do to the glory of God. And I pray that for us. May we be known for that actually in this neighborhood and beyond as a church that we love Jesus, we're thankful, and we do everything for the glory of God, eating or drinking or not. In Christ's name, amen.